Good evening. Welcome to 48 Shades of Football, everybody's favourite English language Korean footballing podcast. And on tonight's show, well, a very special show, actually. We're joined by uh, Devin Rocliffe, the uh, author, eventually the author of uh, Who Ate All the Squid? Football Adventures in South Korea. It's out now uh, from uh, Pitch Publishing. Uh, but I'm also joined first by Mark. Mark, it's been a long time. It has been a long time. I think the last time I saw you, uh, song number sitting sixth on the table or something, right? Or last time we recorded anyway. Um, there was no, I think I said there was no danger of Songnam being relegated in one of the last podcasts. And you were right. Technically, technically I was right. As we survived uh, on the last day with an amazing second half uh, inspired team talk by the legendary manager that we have. Um, and I will hear no negatives about him, even from Devon. I will hear no Kim negatives Hill. about Songnam's season uh, in 2020. Um, I just love the fact that um, the, the arrogance uh, of the guy whose name escapes me already, who scored Pusan's goal when he was crying a full-time whistle in the, in, in the goals. Like, I, I don't know if I dislike him because he's talented, plays for Pusan, or because he's handsome, or all three, but it's probably all three. Probably all, probably all three. We're going to talk about Busan a lot later on, but it was actually a good season ending for the podcast. Uh, Joe's not with us to, today, but obviously Sue Su- and FC as well will be joining us in the K1 next year. Yeah, they, uh, they were uh, basically five minutes into being uh, in K2 again next year when um, suddenly Joe, who's hated VAR all season, now has a VAR tattoo right across his uh, left shoulder. Um, as in the 95th minute, the referee gave a penalty. Um, and never Ambion a penalty, Jun, was it? <laughs> it was never a penalty, you know. And uh, Ambion Jun stepped up, um, scored it, uh, and kind of carved his name into Suwon FC history and John Book's bench for 2021. Very briefly, uh, I know you've been following Ulsan's progress in the Asia Champions League uh, very, very closely. I'm sure you're, you're extremely delighted about that as well. Yeah, I'm probably... I'm more delighted at the fact that Ulsan are in the final than if it had been a certain team from Suwon that looked as if they were going to flick their way through the tournament, um, to be honest. Uh, yeah, um, again, talking pressure penalties. Like Am Byung Jun scoring a penalty in the 95th minute for Suwon FC. Junior scoring a penalty in the 94th minute or something. I don't even know what it was, actually. Um, they, against um, Iniesta's Kobe to put them in, in at the final um, after... Again, VAR heavily influenced the game that Kobe could have, should have, potentially were 2-0 up, uh, end up losing 2-1. I'm sure that was pretty hard for the Japanese team to take. And we'll take a pause while we all snigger. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, final, final on Saturday against uh, Persepolis, I think it is. And um, yeah, after all this, it could end up with the K-League having an, an Asian Champions League winner, which uh, seemed quite unlikely, shall we say, at the, the beginning of this year. Tonight is a night I thought would never happen, basically. It's been 17 long, long years. But I'm delighted to say that we are now joined by, uh, by, by Devin Rocliffe, the author 
of Who Ate All the Squid? Football Adventures in South Korea is out now. Uh, Devon, uh, delighted to have you here. Thanks for having me on, Alistair. Happy to be speaking on this very famous podcast of yours. It, it is in, indeed super, super famous. About to get more famous, of course, with, with your, your esteemed presence as well. Um, but it's been a long time. Uh, Mark actually wrote down this question, and um, uh, the, the name of the cathedral he was looking for was the, the Sagrada Familia. And uh, we thought there were two things, two man-made things under construction for, for a very, very long time. One was Gaudi's Cathedral in, in Barcelona. The other was Mipo's book. Um, did you ever think it wasn't going to happen? Yes, definitely. Uh, writing a book is a pretty intense uh, project. And uh, when you're doing that, in addition to balancing a full-time job, it can be pretty tricky. There were several times over the years where it was start and stop, but uh, thankfully I was able to finally get it done. One of the silver linings, I guess you could say, of the pandemic was that I was finally able to get this project done after 17 odd years. And did you did you set out in 2003? Did you did you actually set out to write a book? Was it always in your mind or did it just sort of happen? I think for the most part, it just sort of happened. Uh, I went out to South Korea. That was the first time I had lived in a country with a, a football culture because I'm from Canada. I started watching my local club, which is Busan Eye Park, and it didn't really have any plan to write, even though I was a writer. Um, but when Ian Porterfield, the uh, Scottish manager, went out there, he was the first British manager to uh, work in the K-League, and he was going to bring three players out from English football. So I thought, oh, this is something special. And it was a unique time as well. Uh, South Korea had just co-hosted the World Cup. Football was huge at that time. Uh, K-League players, well, the national team players, I should say, became big superstars, bigger than K-pop players for a while. And it was also a big time of social change with globalization happening and, uh, you know, barriers were coming down and whatnot. So I just thought this is, this is an interesting project. Um, there were two books that were published about Japanese football prior to the 2002 World Cup, uh, but there wasn't a book about South Korean football. So I thought this is something that I could do. And I think still in those intervening 17 years, there hasn't actually been a book about South Korean football. You still managed to uh, still managed to get the monopoly uh, all those years later. Luckily, yeah, there was a book about uh, Chinese football that came out in 2007, I think it was. But yeah, you're right. There is one academic book about Korean football, but this is the first trade book about uh, South Korean football. You're right. So the book, the book is obviously called Who Ate All the Squid? I mean, I'm going to assume that's either a, a kind of play on, you know, uh, pump referees or it's a play on the smell in the stadiums. Like, which, or is it both? I mean, or is it neither maybe actually? <laughs> well, I was quite surprised when I went to, into a, a stadium and I saw someone tearing apart a, a dried squid as a snack in the stadium uh, obviously a food a food that you're not going to see in a british football ground so it made me laugh um, i thought of the old the old uh, british football chant who ate all the pies and i thought i'd just replace pies with squid you know like the old fatty folks chant so and that's how the uh, the title was born i think we still see it don't they they have the little uh, the little gas ring next to the next to the little convenience stores in the stadium where you can still cook i remember seeing that at the Munhak stadium uh, for for the first time going in there, and it was quite, I would say, a a, a culture shock. No no bottle available, no pies available. But hey, uh, you want to you want to cook this dead squid on a on a on a on a gas ring? 
Yeah, and we also, I'm sure Devin has seen it, you know, like the famous photographs of uh, Songnam, the YF boys actually having Sam Gipsal, Soju, Kimchi, Bokenbap, and a whole lot right, right at the back of the uh, Skysock in uh, Tanchon, yeah. So it's not just Squid that is even, but I guess who ate all the Sam Gipsal probably wasn't going to have the same ring to it, right? Too many syllables, yeah. One of the foods that I liked actually was the bundigi, the silkworm pupae. They were selling those in the Pohang steelyard for a while. So basically for listeners who aren't familiar, you take the, the pupae of uh, silkworms and you, you saute it in, I think it's a sweetened soy sauce. Sometimes they put beef broth, something like that in there, but it's great. You just take a little uh, wooden toothpick, use it as a skewer and eat it out of a cup. It's great food. It's not I a great agree. food. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's a lot of things. It's not a great food. I'm sorry. About that, so. the, the season, t- 2003, obviously Busan was... You know, they, they were a few, a couple of years into being the Busan icons after being the Day of Royals. It, it wasn't a good season, was it? It was a, a really, really, a really, really difficult season. Uh, it was Ian Porterfield's first season. Uh, obviously, his second two were a little bit more more successful. As you said, you were sort of attracted to it by he said, "Oh, I'm bringing in these three three footballers from from Britain. Oh, it's going to be great." Uh, do you feel he didn't really manage the expectations all that well? That's a good question. Maybe I'll just touch really quickly on how Porterfield did and then mention that uh, the question about how well he did and how what he learned, I guess, about foreign players. Uh, so he was there. Ian Porterfield was there as the manager of Busan for a little over three years. As you said, the first year was pretty bad. They finished above two of the new teams, uh, Daegu and Gwangju Songmu. But yeah, it was a pretty bad year for the team. Uh, the next year, Porterfield dragged Busan up to uh, mid-table in the league. And he actually won the, the postseason Korean FA Cup at that time. And the things suddenly at that point went great for him. So there was in the next nine months, his team was basically invincible. So he went into the 2005 K-League season when there was two stages. And he actually, Busan actually won the first half of the 2005 K-League season. Um, and then because they had won the 2004 Korean FA Cup, they were playing in the Asian Champions League. Um, and they did really well. They were going absolute gangbusters. They were setting records in the group stage. Um, and they even beat the uh, Qatari champions, Al Saad, in the, uh, the quarterfinals. So they were doing really well. And then just suddenly it all tanked. It absolutely collapsed and it became abysmal. So because Busan in 2005 had won the first stage of the K-League season, they didn't need to do anything really in the second half of the 2005 season and that's exactly what they did they didn't pick up a single win despite winning the first half of the season so they limped into the the playoffs in 2005 and got knocked out by Incheon which were only there in their second year at that time and then proceeding into the uh, Asian Champions League uh, semifinals they got thrashed 7-0 including a 5-0 home loss at the the Gudok so that was pretty embarrassing Um, and then uh, into the 2006 season I think Porterfield actually equalized the record the k-league record for games without a win so he didn't break the record but he equalized it and then he thought eh, maybe time to go so he resigned and he left and that was it would you say that martin rennie obviously being at eland i mean maybe it's a little bit different there he started off with a great first season then absolutely tanked the next one and a half i think right um so the, do you think there are some kind of similarities between porterfield and rennie maybe both being obviously scottish being one of them i guess yeah, I mean, it was tough for both of them. I think one of the similarities was that both of them were at clubs with very limited budgets. Seoul Elan was born and they had these big, 
boasts of, oh, in five years, we're going to win the Champions League and all this bollocks. And they've they've really struggled. This year, they've done okay. They almost made the playoffs in the K-League too. But I think it was a bit of a wake-up call for Elan management um, or ownership, I should say, in terms of how difficult it would be. But yeah, Ian's time, Ian Porterfield's time at Busan was definitely a three-act structure. It was almost Shakespearean, like a Shakespearean tragedy, I guess you could say. But yeah, I think one of the things he learned was that it's really difficult to get Western players to settle in, in South Korea in the K-League. Uh, Jamie Curitan uh, came out of the Norwich uh, Youth Academy. He was offered a spot at Man U's Class of 92 by Alex Ferguson. Really good pedigree. Only lasted four months in South Korea. Um, after that, there was Chris Marsden, who had uh, captain Southampton. Only lasted one month. I think his wife couldn't settle and he had to go back. And then there was a really promising Australian striker, who uh, the A-League wanted to sign right when the A-League was launching. But he actually decided to go and play for Porterfield in Busan. He only lasted two months. So it was just one after another of foreign players um, not settling, or the British players, I should say. I, I mean, Alistair, you were obviously hugely sad that Jimmy Curtin um, didn't spend his whole career uh, in Korea, right? You know what, I, I, I greatly enjoyed reading the book, but I, if I heard one more mention of the name Jamie Curtin, I was going to... Um, um, I, I, obviously, I remember Jamie Curtin showing up in the East Anglian Derby with his hair dyed green. And um, I despised him that day, and nothing I've heard since has ever changed my mind about Jamie Curtin. Um, I, I respect the guy for still playing into his, into his 40s, obviously. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I could have told you back in the 1990s that Jamie Curtin was a wrong one, basically. Obviously, Porterfield came in, and I obviously in my, my my day job where I deal with, with with horse racing, and I, you know, I, I meet guys. I, I know guys who you know they who, who come here, and you know they they think horse racing peaked sometime in the early 1980s in England, and that things never change and that what we need to do to make things better we need to get some Britons in and it seemed reading your book that was sort of Porterfield's you know first sort of, of thought and I think even years later when Senel Gunes came to the K-League when he came to, to FC Seoul after a few games he was like yeah everything's good but you know there's a couple of things that could be different I'm going to go and have a, a little word with the K-League and the KFA and sort them out and I remember on the, the forum at that time we were thinking yeah good luck with that mate and the one who really who really, really was successful was probably the the one who we thought would be the least successful. Uh, it was it was Andy Cook. Yeah, uh, he was brought in. I don't mean to be rude, but almost as an afterthought. Jamie Curtin was the the crown jewel for for Porterfield, and basically when he realized uh, what kind of uh, position or what kind of uh, striker. Curtin was. He was kind of an old-fashioned poaching striker who needed a large target man to win possession and feed him the ball. Uh, so basically, he went out, Porterfield went out and found that kind of a prototype to feed uh, Curtin. And ironically, as you said, Cook ended up being the big goal scorer that season. He actually did start his career, Andy Cook, as a goal scorer. But when he was at Burnley, they shifted him into being a target man, and he remained a target man at Stoke. And that's what the, the original plan was for him to be a target man. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There was a little bit of arrogance there from Porterfield. When I, I met Porterfield at this meeting, it was kind of like a, a confrontation or a showdown meeting between the Busan supporters and Porterfield about what's going wrong and how come all the uh, top scoring foreign players have suddenly left. And he said something to me in the hallway, quietly in private. And he's basically said, that's it. I'm not going to sign any more Yugoslavian players. Only British 
or only English speaking players from now on, which I thought was kind of bizarre. Um, so usually in the K league, you know, you've got uh, Brazilians, Colombians, Eastern Europeans, that tends to be the way of the land. And uh, for the longest time, he seemed to refuse to want to, to do that. To be fair to him, you know, if you have pull in British football, why not use your network and bring some players in? But at the same time, it was a bit arrogant just to kind of raise his nose at the, you know, the Brazilian scouting system or whatever it was and not want to use that. And I think he found out the hard way, but there's one quote that I thought was quite funny in terms of uh, Westerners adjusting to the, the Korean ways that I thought I'd share with you. So this is from Ian Porterfield. It originally took me three years to adjust to life in England. So I don't think I'll be bothered by culture shock here in Korea. So I'm not sure if that's a joke. I don't think it was. So this is a Scotsman saying England is so exotic and foreign that, yeah, no worry, South Korea. <laughs> Perhaps it was a joke. I hope it was a joke, but. That's how I prepared for Korea. I went down to England for six months and lived in London. And I was like, oh, wow, this is easy now. Do you know what I mean? 14 years later, I'm like, yeah, it was a walk in the park. Um, but you mentioned there about, you know, like British players. I mean, obviously you, you mentioned about Brazilians and, and, and so on. Yeah. And I mean, People haven't learned, potentially, uh, from Porterfield's mistake, if you want to call it that. I mean, we've had Niall McGinn uh, coming from Aberdeen. We've had Jordan Much uh, at Gyeongnam just like last year. Um, Niall McGinn, I do know, you know, like from his time at Celtic and at Aberdeen, and he should have torn the K-League a new one. I mean, he should have, uh, he should have been an incredible uh, success. But it does seem to be that that idea, well, if they're good in Britain, they must be amazing in, in, in Korea and obviously you know McGinn played I, I literally think uh, I've played more more minutes on a K-League pitch than McGinn to be perfectly honest but that's just walking around uh, Moran at half time during a at reserve, at reserve league matches yes. <laughs> yeah basically yeah um, <laughs> which is about as much as he did as well for Guangzhou to be honest yeah it sounded like he really struggled um, I think the big thing is really just the fact that it's a completely different culture, completely different language. You have to go somewhere expecting to be really shaken out of your comfort zone. What I noticed with uh, the three players who were originally signed by Porterfield, the three players from English football, is that uh, you're probably better off um, settling in a place like Korea if you're single. Uh, Jamie Curtin had two young kids back in England, and so he was away from them, and that was the big thing that prevented him from settling. Um, uh, Andy Cook had a wife who was uh, pregnant. So she came out to Korea while she was pregnant. And then she couldn't really go outside in the summer when she was in her third trimester. Um, so she was getting uh, cabin fever and they were missing family back home. And then um, Yon Olav Yeld, uh, his wife was actually, I think, already in her third trimester when he was signed. So he had to go to Korea and leave her back at home while she was pregnant. And then he had to sneak back to England, I think it was, to uh, have a cesarean. Well, not him, but her. <laughs> um, so it, <laughs> hey, until you try it. Um, but yeah, I think with having, having a spouse, having kids, having all these responsibilities does make it harder. I think if you're probably in your younger 20s and you maybe you've traveled already, maybe you're really interested in seeing the world, you'd probably do well. But if you're a typical person who really isn't all that interested in traveling, just because your agent says, oh, here's an opportunity, it's probably not going to go well unless you go out with an open mind, unless you're actually excited. So who would you say then? I mean, like obviously for people who you know, have been following K-League for the last four or five years, you know, the one name 
like on everyone's lips is obviously Dehan. I mean, Dehan has been like pretty much the the kind of success in terms of a foreigner. You've got Cezina at Diego, who's who's obviously been great as well. Um, who would you say has been more Dehan than Dehan? Like, I mean, is it a player out there that you think, you know, is a better foreigner or, or has been more important, has brought more value than Dehan himself? Or do you think Dehan is the kind of role model or the best? Yeah, Dehan is obviously an exceptional player. If you look at the list of the top goal scorers every season from the very beginning of the, the league, Dehan's uh, record still stands in terms of, I believe, it, maybe it was Eclipse this year. But I would I would say the, you know the easiest option right now at the end of the 2020 season for who's the best foreign player would obviously be Ulsan's uh, Junior Nagao. Um, it's kind of funny to think back that Daegu actually released him in 2017. They had signed him and he actually scored a fair number of goals, but uh, he got injured and they just thought, eh, let's get rid of him. He's going to be a flop. If they were more patient, he might very well still be there today. If they could have uh, could have afforded to keep him, shall we say? But yeah, he'd probably be my choice. Speaking of, uh, of, of foreigners, uh, you, you touched briefly, I think, on the one of the times that you met Ian Porterfield. And uh, tell us a little bit about Zoran Urimov and his uh, his transfer from, from Busan to, to Suwon. Right. So maybe a little bit of context, a bit of background. So Busan had been a very big club under Deu ownership until the end of 99. And then Deu collapsed. The company collapsed. Um, and Busan was taken over by Hyundai, and their budget went way down. So Urumov was one of those players, a Serbian player um, at the club. He was actually technically a, a defender, but they often used him as a midfielder or a striker. He ended up scoring a lot of goals um, under or for Busan under Porterfield. Um, his contract came up halfway through the 2003 K-League season, and what foreign players used to do back then was try and get short contracts. That might sound counterintuitive, but the K-League had a system where if you signed on for a club, you'd get a bonus. So in addition to your salary, you got a bonus. So there's no point signing on to a club for five years if you're a very good player and you know you're of a high pedigree because you go to one team for one year, get your bonus, go to another team, get another bonus in addition to your salary. So the better players were uh, loath to sign long contracts. So Again, um, Urumov's uh, contract was coming up mid-2003. Suwon Blue Wings were very keen to get a hold of him. So they offered him some big money. Um, so what ended up happening, according to Porterfield, allegedly, is that he was told that there was a, a different system for intra-league transfers in the K-League. So that if a player was going to a different club, um, they couldn't go on a Bosman, basically. They couldn't go on a free transfer. Uh, the club that had signed him would still own that player's rights. So even if his contract at Busan had ended, um, Busan would still own his rights and another K-League club, if they wanted him, would have to pay a fee. So that's what Porterfield claimed he was told by the Busan officials. So he was basically saying that he was stitched up, that there were a lot of envelopes allegedly passed around <laughs> behind the scenes. Um, I think most people ended up happy. Uh, Busan didn't want to go into a, uh, a bidding war with Suwon, a big club like Suwon with a lot of money for Urumov. They didn't want to lose face like that. Um, Urumov wanted more money, so he ended up winning. I guess really it was just the uh, Porterfield and the K-League fans, or sorry, the Busan fans who ended up getting screwed out of that. But yeah, there, was, there were allegations from, from Porterfield that basically they lied to him the the busan administration lied to him just to get rid of urumov to decrease the the playing budget and i think to be fair to the the busan administrators um 
it did cost decent money to bring in three players from English football. So perhaps part of the reason for getting rid of Urama was to allow Porterfield to bring in his favored three. But uh, yeah, that, that really didn't help uh, relations between Porterfield and the club when he felt he was being stitched up like that. Allegedly. Of course, of course, you fast forward, you know, like 17 years or so or whatever it is, and you've got Ki Sung Yong wanting to sign for Ulsan or John Book and being unable to because FC Seoul still holds his contract rights. Yeah, Which, it's the same, same in the baseball, isn't it? When they come back, even these players who come back from Major League, right? they do two years in the Major League, they come back and their, their, their original Korean club still has first refusal and, and, and things like that. It's a quite an antiquated contract system. And again, it got the feeling no one explained this to Porterfield at, at, at the time and it obviously caused, obviously caused big problems. Uh, can I ask Devin, how well did you know did you know Porterfield? I mean, it, I, for people who don't follow Korean football, who don't really see that it's possible, I mean, I, I love the thing that you were, you were, at, the, you were at the steel yard uh, and this Porterfield just meanders up to the, the end and has a chat through the, a chat through the gate. Like, um, how, how sort of well did you, you end up knowing him? Um, reasonably well. I think the, that story with the, uh, the chat at the steel yard, I was with the uh, Busan supporters at the Pohan game and we had to, arrive at the stadium outrageously early in the bus like two and a half hours before kickoff it was just like punishment and i think there were so few people out that uh porterfield noticed us and i was near the cage that's why he approached me yeah i, I did have several uh, conversations with him but what really struck me uh that that showdown or confrontation meeting that i mentioned where he told me in private about what what allegedly happened with uh Uramov is that he barely knew me at the time and he totally opened up to me and he was saying oh yeah they've stitched me up and there's envelopes being passed around he thought I was actually a, a journalist so if had I actually been a journalist and reported this this would have been on the front cover of the sports and he probably would have been sacked or suspended or something so he he tended to open up very easily to people he's a bit naive I guess you could say in a kind of innocent sort of way and there was there was another one where he he pretty much had a go at you as well on the on the pitch I think in 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 Busan thinking you were responsible for internet rumors. So there, there used to be a, uh, a forum called rockfootball.com that many of your listeners will be familiar with. And uh, I think one of your uh, former co-hosts uh, posted Was it him? Was it him? We <laughs> thought it was him. <laughs> <laughs> I won't name any names, but one of your former co-hosts uh, posted some colorful things on the internet and i think ian thought it was me so one day uh there was the quote-unquote derby with absolutely no heat between busan and ulsan busan ended up winning despite being woeful that year uh i meandered down onto the pitch uh sauntered up to him said hey nice result etc and he just glared at me he gave me the death glare and yeah he thought it was me posting the stuff on the internet so he wasn't uh, he wasn't too happy with that but he settled down like he usually does after a while. And then he started to talk my ear off as is usual with Porterfield. You mentioned um, in, in, in those days um, having to arrive like two hours before the, the, the game. And one thing that I, I'd sort of forgotten about until, uh, until reading it in your book, in, in 2003, believe it or not, hooliganism was actually becoming quite a big thing in the K-League, wasn't it? There was some, some pretty interesting instances of it, chickens being released on the pitch and things like that. Yeah, it's funny to think about now. It's, it's quite family-friendly these days, the K-League. But um, I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, not just Korea, but even Japan too, had this image of 
British and European football is just being overrun with hooligans and everything was Millwall and that sort of thing. So um, when, when South Korea and um, Japan bid to co-host the World Cup in 2002, when they won, they designed their stadiums with uh, moats, which you don't see really in Britain, but you see them sometimes in some Eastern European countries or in uh, South American countries. So they had this huge gap between the, the running track or the pitch and the stands just to prevent people from invading the pitch. Um, it was quite bizarre how those were built or why those were built in Asia because they weren't really needed for the most part. And in fact, I think there was a game in between Ecuador and someone. There's a Scot who actually attended the game and fell down into the moat, landed on his head, cracked his skull open and was in a coma for a few weeks. So it's quite bizarre. But yeah, there was there was that fear of hooliganism that these, these British people were going to come and run riot. So they built those moats. Uh, Japan actually was offering hooligan insurance during the 2002 World Cup to businesses. And a lot of the retail shops boarded up, fearing that English hooligans were just going to run riot. Um, and there was one time I went to a game and just out of nowhere, a stadium attendant approached me and he said, no drinking. Just to me, no drinking. I thought, what's going on here? And eventually I realized, oh, because I'm a Westerner, I'm Mr. Millwall, that sort of thing. So he was he was quite adamant that I don't touch alcohol, despite the fact that you could see guys bringing in bags of glass soju bottles and you could buy, you know, cans of beer for 50p and that sort of thing. So there was very much a, a, a fear of hooliganism. And I think there was also some admiration among the fans. And so quite a few of the, the K-League Club supporters groups did kind of present themselves as being ultras. So there were a few incidents. The derbies were a bit more heated off the pitch back then, shall we say. Um, obviously, the, the super match back then was Anyang Suwon, not uh, FC Seoul Suwon. Uh, and the, the Jolla derby was pretty big back then, the Junbuk Jeonnam. Uh, Busan supporters, oddly enough, they hated the, the Suwon supporters, even though that was kind of a one-way one -way rivalry. So there was there had been this big fight between players uh suan and busan players and apparently both groups were so drunk that they invaded the pitch and got involved in this brawl um so because of that the pride of busan imposed uh voluntarily a, an alcohol ban on themselves so for quite a few years the busan supporters refused to drink alcohol because of all this hooliganism but yeah there were quite a few incidents there was uh suan fans were throwing glass bottles at the linesman during a, a derby against Anyang. Um, I think there was a time when, uh, oh, right, the, the Janam had a game against Buchan. And I think one of the Buchan players um, made a, some kind of a shushing remark or after whatever. Scoring to, a, after scoring a goal. Yeah, something like that. I told them to be quiet. So I think they were just livid, the, the Janam supporters. So they, they surrounded the exit of the Buchan dressing room and they surrounded the Buchan bus and wouldn't let them leave until the player came out and apologized. Uh, there was one time where the Junbuk supporters invaded the pitch and they tried to uh, enter the away dressing room and they were smashing the windows, the glass windows of the away dressing room with steel pipes. It's just madness. And this is all just, you know, silly bravado bullshit. These kids trying to, pardon my French, these kids just trying to have a laugh and they're, they're just emulating what they see on TV, even though this had already gone out of fashion in the UK by the, the late 80s, I suppose. Um, and the, even the Latte Giants, um, there's one story in the book about there was a, uh, a batter. So he's playing for uh, Daegu Samsung Lions. He's one home run away from the record. Uh, all the home fans, the Latte Giants fans, want to see him hit this home run and break this record. So when their own pitcher, their home pitcher, 
uh, walks him intentionally, they go absolutely mad. They start ripping up the benches. They start setting fire to the benches and throwing the on fire benches down onto the pitch. It was just wild. You don't see things like that anymore. It won't surprise you to learn that Lotte Giants is Mark's baseball team. Mark, you, you would never do anything so juvenile as surround a bus until, uh, until they come out and issue an apology for their performance, would you? Um, so I actually have a really interesting story, a really kind of funny story about that. I, in the year that Songnam got relegated, uh, we, I went down to Pohang uh, and we took two buses down, which for Songnam is actually the equivalent of 100 buses, to be perfectly honest. And, um, and we obviously lost the game. At the same time, uh, Inchon beat Subban FC, I think it was, to survive. So Songnam fell into the playoffs. And so the Songnam fans who had been kind of really patient and kind of calm all I mean, we'd been actually second in the league when Thiago was sold and then we dropped down to second bottom, right? Um, but they, they kind of dealt with it in an adult uh, manner. Uh, but in the last game, we uh, they surrounded the bus, the, the team bus. So you've got the two buses of fans and they surrounded the team bus. Uh, and it was being led by the head of the ultras at that point in time, like the cheer boy, whatever they're called whose name is Nick, uh, probably shouldn't say what he's doing right now, probably take his name Nick off the podcast if we can. Um, and um, basically... Nick, uh, is that N-I-C-K? <laughs> yes, it is indeed, and he's actually okay. standing for office. Anyway, and um, he was leading the uh, the kind of chance and the demanding that, you know, the, the captain at the time, um, oh my God, I can't remember his name, uh, they were demanding that they come off the bus and, and, and so on. So the, the manager... Like Kim Hagbum had left and then the caretaker manager had left and then actually the caretaker caretaker had left and this was like just some random like you know kit man who had kind of taken control of the last or taken charge of, of, of the last game so he comes off the bus and uh, everyone's screaming and shouting he's kind of trying to apologize and at this point Nick realizes that there's a bunch of kids um, standing next to us so he stops everyone tells the players to go back on the bus they put the kids on the bus the bus driver closes the doors and then they all turn around, get the players back off the bus and start to berate them again. And I'm just like, no other country in the world would you A, care about the kids and B, the players would come back off again. They'd be like, great, move, drive through the fans now. But nope, the players patiently came back off and had, you know, like the berating. And um, it was just, it was just brilliant. I, I, I was just, I was kind of half laughing, half doing, there was like, Girls crying. I think you actually have a recording of the crying. Alistair. Do you have a recording of the crying? Yes. Um, it was just I, like, I, I, when I can't sleep, I play that to myself to make my <laughs> make me feel better. The the song that fans crying. I mean, I, I had been a. I mean, I, I no, I had been. I am a Celtic fan, and I've been through the bad times of Celtic and stuff. But I'd never actually seen anything like anything like this. And it, it kind of, you know, I think getting relegated really just kind of re rehardened this my stance on being a Songnam fan and, and and I guess that that kind of leads into my my next question is obviously Songnam got relegated um that that season you know a couple of years later we have FC Seoul in the playoffs as Pusan Bottle it and so don't get relegated what made you smile more Songnam being relegated or FC Seoul potentially being relegated oh always the latter always the latter Alistair won't want to Come hear that on. <laughs> Do me a favor. <laughs> MK Dons of South Korea. That- Obviously, there was a movement at the time. They, the, what the K-League wanted was a, a new club to, to, to spring up and, and, and join. And ultimately, what they had to do was they had to get a, a new team in. And Busan 
Busan Ipark actually applied to to go to the Seoul World Cup Stadium. How how close was that to happening? Do you think? And, and how different would the Kelly be these days? Yeah, it's a good question. What would uh, Seoul I Park be like? Um, it's not clear if how real the the relocation threat was. The the chairman of Busan I Park. Um, is adamant that it was real, that they were going to go, that they were so pissed off with Busan City Hall that they were they were, they were at wit's end and they were going to relocate. Uh, Ian Porterfield, I don't think he was ever told the full details of, the, of what was happening there, but in his opinion, it was just kind of a strategic ploy to to extract more concessions out of Busan City Hall. So, for example, in that first season that Busan was playing at Ashiad Stadium, the rent was incredibly high. Um, the the pitch management administration through the city wasn't letting Busan actually uh, train on the pitch. So they had to go elsewhere to train. Like the, if the Korean Olympic team or national team wanted to train at Ashad, no problem. But if Busan I park that actually played at Ashad wanted to train there, no, sorry, we have to let the grass grow. It's had too much, you know, feed on it, that sort of thing. Um, and also there was supposed to be uh, sponsorship. The city was supposed to sponsor Busan and have the Busan, um, APEC, Busan APEC is the sponsor and, you know, Dynamic Busan is the sponsor, but that only happened for about half of a season. So the club was getting really pissed off with uh, Busan City Hall. I think it was probably, they probably entertained the thought of going to Seoul, but I think for the most part, it was a strategic ploy. Um, the third subway line was already under construction at that time. And when that opened in 2005, there was a subway stop right by the stadium, uh, Ashiad Stadium. So I think that helped. Um, and one of, the th one of the problems was that it was just hard to get people uh, into the stadium. The attendances were so low, but the, the capacity of uh, Sangam, the Seoul World Cup Stadium, was actually larger than Ashiad. I think it's about uh, a quarter larger or a third larger than Ashiad is. So it would have been even worse in that regard. They wouldn't have had a running track, fair enough. And there's, you know, more people up in Seoul, but it's hard to say. I think it was probably more of a bluff than reality, but uh, I don't know. It's, it's really, it hasn't really been confirmed. But as I said, Porterfield thought it was a ploy um, as a negotiating tactic. But yeah, it would have been really interesting had iPark moved to Seoul because uh, had Seoul iPark been a club and been funded by Hyundai like Busan iPark is now, you'd probably see a pretty weak Seoul club. They'd probably be the yo-yo club that Busan is now, which would be quite interesting. Uh, and you'd probably see a different Busan club started up. You might see a citizen club similar to Daegu FC or Suwon FC started in Busan. I've actually had that same uh, fantasy dream, Devin, that you mentioned there about Seoul being that yo-yo club, um, to be to be honest, yeah. So they actually have an ulterior, like a kind of whole different alternate universe where Seoul I part did happen and they do get relegated all the time. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah, it does happen. It's great. Yeah, it's a pity they couldn't just start a new club, as, as you already mentioned. Uh, the original goal was actually to start two new clubs, uh, but I think Seoul City Hall is only offering... Uh, a, like a reduction in rent at Sangam for one of the two clubs that they were hoping to start. But uh, obviously, as we know, uh, there were no new clubs. There were no Jabel or business conglomerates wanting to start a new team at that time. So sadly, it had to be an existing team moved to Seoul. Uh, you mentioned the really, really low attendance. And, and Busan, Busan was an, a little bit of an anomaly. Uh, of 2003, maybe not, but 2004 was the, the sort of the first year the year I arrived in Korea, 2005 was the year I, I first went um, 
seriously for games. The, the, the world's dumbest league it was, I think, in 2005, as you mentioned before, uh, the first stage winners against the second stage winners and Busan Downing Tools. I, mean, I went to the, I actually went to the, the, the final uh, in the Munhak. It was Incheon against uh, Ulsan, Incheon in their, their first season. Ichan Su scoring a hat-trick, which was made for a pretty miserable afternoon, I have to say. Um, <clears throat> there was 35,000 people in the Munhak. These days, mm-hmm. they're, they're lucky to get, well, obviously, okay, this year is a little bit weird, but uh, last year, they were lucky to get two, 3,000 in the, the football-specific stadium. Mark and I were at uh, Seoul against Songnam with 65,000 people in, in, in Sangam. Okay, 30 of those got, 30,000 of those got free tickets off Shinhan Bank. But I, I remember some huge, some huge crowds. Where, where do you think, as, as sort of an observer from afar, where do you think it went wrong for Kaylee? I think there's all sorts of reasons. Um, I think to look across the pond, I think the J League started in a, a really good way with a, a really uh, loud marketing strategy. That from the from the very beginning, there was a big bang and people wanted to go and it was new and it was exciting. Whereas the K League kind of started with a bit of a, a, a fizzle, I guess you could say. Um, you know, it was started in 1983 by Chen Duhuan, the dictator, to distract young men from going to democracy protests. So. At the time, a lot of the, the teams were playing at the Dongdaemun Stadium in Seoul. Um, so it wasn't really a loud start, but I think there's all sorts of factors over the years as to why the K-League has kind of fizzled rather than grown. Um, I think poor marketing is probably one of the biggest things. Um, when you look at the lack of advertising, um, when you look on TV, for example, often the television channel would have promoted the game rather than the club taking out an ad, putting together a nice ad. It's just the television channel say, oh, tune in Saturday at three o'clock. You know, there wasn't really a big effort. Uh, I remember when the Janam administrators would hire senior citizens to take a banner and they would stand beside the, the road with this banner and say, saying, come to games. And that was the extent of the Janam uh, marketing for a while there to get punters out to the game. Um, so I think that's been a big one. Um, the lack of TV coverage has been pretty big as well. Like obviously baseball dominates still today, uh, South Korean TV. I'm not sure if it's still the same way today, but in the old days you would turn on the television and the three big networks would all be showing the same baseball game. Um, and then once that baseball game would end, all three of them would switch over to the last 10 minutes of a K-League game. And you'd think, why wouldn't one of them show the full football game for the football fans out there? So there's baffling things like that. Um, the K-League is getting a lot better now with their, their TV coverage. There were a lot of international deals this year because of the pandemic and the, the lockdowns in the European countries. Um, but we'll see if that helps. But it would be nice if there was a dedicated TV channel for the K-League or something like that. But we'll see what happens. Um, I, I was thinking about this and when after the 2002 World Cup, when Korea did really well and a lot of the national team players became these big megastars and eclipsed K-pop stars, most of them moved to Europe. And what happened was the big networks would, rather than buying the rights to the K-League, they would buy the rights to, let's say, the Roma games in Italy, or they'd buy the rights to whichever teams in Europe had a, a big Korean national team player. And those games would be shown yeah, I was just going to jump in there and say that they, when you talked here about, you know, when the baseball finished and they move, they would move on and show that the last 10 minutes of a Kaylee game, now it's, a, now it's 10 minutes of son highlights. Um, I'm sure that Alison will remember that there was a little bit of confusion. I can't remember exactly what, what year it was, but it was a few years ago when Korean TV was advertising the Korean Derby 
that that is what it was called the Korean Derby, not the racing derby, but football derby. I was really excited for a moment. Yeah. Yeah, and um, everyone's like, "Oh, the Korean Derby, that must be it must be the super match or something," and uh, it was actually I, I'm going to I can't really remember, but it was basically like. Ki Sung Yong versus Lee Chong Yong. It was like Bolton or whatever, like versus Swansea. And you're like, that's the Korean derby because it was like, you know, two Koreans playing. Um, maybe three years ago, JTBC, uh, in fairness, JTBC 3, I think they were called, three sports, did cover or did show like a lot of uh, K-League games. I mean, they had one on, at least one or two every, every week. Um, and it was successful. Like their viewing figures were pretty high. And they just dropped it at the end of the season. Don't know what happened there. So I think it's been it's been much better. Obviously, this now there's many many more sports channels. I think the best thing that's happened to K League recently is that SBS, KBS, and NBC now they don't show any K League at all, and that's a good thing because they can just focus on the baseball. And now it's allowed Sky Sports, JTBC Sports, IB Sports, the uh, Singhwal Chukjay channel that Joe hates because he doesn't have it on his um, doesn't have it on his cable cable package. Which seems to show every single Suwon FC game. There's now enough channels to, to, to cater for that. But I have to say, it's always been against baseball. And something you mentioned in, in the book is that part of the problem was if there was no subway at that time. So if people were going to make it out there, they, they preferred to go to the baseball stadium next, next door. And I think Mark and I, who held out against baseball for years and years and years, when we finally actually went to a baseball game, we were, we were like, wow, this is amazing. It's so much better than the football. This, this is brilliant. Um, people actually come and have a good time here, whereas people come to the K-League Stadium to be to be miserable. And um, it, it it's it was it was quite an, an eye opener for us after after all this time. So I mean, obviously, yeah, as, as Arthur said there, you know that you know you mentioned about marketing and like so on, you know, and some of the things, you know, like football is not really that exciting. So we kind of create our own. Uh, excitement around it, you know, uh, with the things, for example, you know, like uh, K-pop, you know, Hello Venus and so on, where, you know, like you mentioned the amazing, fantastic uh, resource that was the Rock Football Forum and it's uh, bus porn. Um, we had Keirig ran one year with the uh, ball beer girls. Uh, we now have introduction of temporary stands in Buchon, out of Buchon, potentially back into Buchon, closed again. Because um, Buchon fans can't behave, they think it's still 2003. Um, with those four things, like, what do you think is the most important? Halftime K-pop, bus porn, ball beer girls, or a temporary stand? Well, it's obviously a tongue-in-cheek question, but if I can be really dull for a minute, I think temporary stands are a, a pretty good idea, considering all those the running tracks in the K-League. It's really helped uh, with the atmosphere, but... Uh, Beyond that, you know, to answer the question a bit less seriously, I think the bus porn. It's got to be the bus porn. You can't go wrong with a good up-close photo of a big, big bus. You did actually include one in, in the book as well, which I was quite gratified about. It was the Busan Graffiti. But what would you say was the best bus you saw in your time in Korea? Ooh, that's a tough one. Well, the problem with the, the supporters' buses is there were no washrooms. There were no toilets on them. So you had to just cross your legs tightly. I wonder if the, the player buses ever had toilets. I never, I never found that out. One of these mysteries of South Korea. Um, I think Incheon, Incheon Co-Rail back in the day, they had a really nice bus with four different mirrors in the front. So you can't go wrong. 
I heard that, and uh, it was the great one that they, they used to say the old um, the old Busan Day Roars one used to have a full length mirror so that Anjun Huan could admire himself in, in it in it at, at, at the bank. Uh, you, you also obviously supporters buses like I, I've I've not done that. I know Mark, you did it for a couple of seasons. Uh, Devin, I know you did it back in two thousand and three. You, you you mentioned what you, they 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 go over a sort of uh, a sort of way bridge and the bus driver says, hey, "Quick, everyone up to the front because my vehicle's not roadworthy." Right. Yeah, exactly. So they, they were pulled over at some kind of a scale um, and they were flagged to the side of the road to pull over because I guess something wasn't right. And as he said, the bus driver freaked out, ordered everyone on the bus to the front of the bus to try and game the system so that the bus could be uh, deemed roadworthy. And off we went. And I'm thinking, mm, so buses don't have seatbelts and this bus probably isn't roadworthy, but off we go. But the worst was the no toilets. I mean, if you're if you're going from Busan to Daejeon or something, and there's only one rest stop that the bus decides to stop at, it is agony. You go to the game, you have a few tins, you know, you need the washroom, and ooh, it's rough without the without the the toilets on the bus. So I don't think I would ever do that again. It was fun for one season, but that was enough. Yeah, I've I've done um, Pohang uh, away twice. Um, one was like midweek, uh, the bus took like seven hours to get there, and the other time, uh, was the game that we got the fit we fell in, in the playoffs. And I, I, I also took the public bus to uh Changwon, um, because it was the first game back in K1 uh, a couple of years ago, and I vowed that was the last time I would probably ever travel on one of those buses. Um, you know, back home, I did it a lot, you know, same idea, you know, like no toilets in those buses, but hey, you know, like you just pull off the road, you you like, you take your butt, butt fast or whatever, you know what I mean? And, and everything's fine. Um, but in Korea, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit different. And you do have that one, one stop at the service station, which of course thinks a squid, strangely enough. Um, and, you know, you run to the bathroom, you get back on again, and three hours later, the bus driver's still sitting there, what, you know, like kind of driving really slow, not really caring uh, as, as you're like, you know, four, four cans of cold cast in. Um, so I don't think I would do it again. I would recommend it. Um, there's no atmosphere on the buses, uh, it's free. That's why I would recommend it. I'm Scottish. Um, there's no atmosphere, but it is, it's worth doing it. You do get, you know, you do get, the fans kind of look at you a little bit differently after you've sat on the bus with them, you know, that like you do kind of become a little bit more of a, oh, well, this guy, you know, kind of was pre prepared to sit for five hours on a bus to join you or something, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's an experience I probably won't repeat. Uh, I'm not sure I'll drive my kid uh, onto a bus um, anytime soon either. I was just going to say it's a good way to train your bladder. Uh, one thing we'll 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 we'll, we'll, let, we'll let you go very soon, but we, we can't have you on and not ask you about what seemed to be your your passion over well certainly since since you left Korea anyway. Uh, your focus has tended to be on the uh, on on the lower leagues. Um, I, I back in my back when I used to be off on Saturday and Sundays, I got very bored with the K League as well. And started ended up going around the the K the K three the Seoul Martyrs the Seoul Uniteds, uh, the Jungnang Chorus and all those kind of kind of things. But you you've you've managed to follow the the lower leagues from afar, which is quite a uh, quite a feat. Um, but um, what sort of changes have you you seen in the lower leagues? Um, do you think they're heading in the right direction? Yeah, I, I definitely do think they are. Um there have been a lot of reformists who have taken administrative positions in the KFA and have pushed to uh, 
to move away from the franchise sort of American style model and move more towards a, a pyramid, an open pyramid. So that's definitely a, a positive trend. Um, there's been a real explosion, I guess you could say, in the number of, of lower division clubs. Sadly, a lot of them still kind of disappear. I think this year we've already seen, is it Yeju and uh, Ichan are both disappearing from the uh, K4 league. And there's going to be two new ones. So it's a bit of like a, a whack-a-mole, so to speak, two come, two go. Um, but yeah, over the years, there have been an increasing number of clubs. It's good to see. Uh, 2003, the year this book is based in, there were only two divisions. And the year before that, in 2002, there was just the one division. There was just the K-League. Um, so the, yeah, there's definitely been a lot of growth now that we have K-League 1 all the way down to the, the K-7. It's good to see that there is this formalization of uh, the, the pro, the semi-pro, and the amateur. Um, but obviously, those are three silos. There's barriers between them. Clubs don't go up and down between the silos, just within the silos. Um, and so there is a, a plan to remove those, those barriers and to have complete mobility. But uh, I think it'll, it'll be tough. Um, a club like Seoul Elan paid, I think, roughly a million dollars to join the K-League 2. So to get the K-League to agree to have relegation down to the K-3 League, you know, a club like that's going to want their money back. They're going to want their million dollars back. So who's going to pay them? Is it going to be the K-League? Is it going to be the KFA? There's also all sorts of matters of compensation and stuff like that to happen. Um, but one of the really exciting things is when they will link up the, the semi-pro and the amateur. So that's the K-4 and linking up at the K-5. There's quite a few clubs that are technically amateur um, in the K-5 League that basically pay their players semi-pro wages already and uh, they could go up i think the only barrier is that to play in the k4 league you have to have a certain number of administrative staff so it's it's been pretty good i think the in recent years maybe the past four or five years there's been a lot of good efforts made to to change things up or getting rid of the franchise system eventually but uh, we need more more club stability i think uh, the the ownership model in south korea for football clubs is quite bizarre you're either a bankrolled by a big corporation or you're bankrolled by your local government and you could argue that especially at the lower level neither of those are incredibly stable so it would help if clubs spend a lot more time getting uh, sponsorship from local companies things like that i think that would really help to avoid clubs kind of just disappearing every november and december but i've been really pleased compared as i said to 2003 where you had two divisions you have seven now um, you, you, in theory, you could have clubs going all the way up to the top in the future from K7 to the K-League 1. If you look to Japan, you've got clubs like Matsumoto who went literally from non-league all the way up to the J1. So that is the dream, I guess you could say. I think it's going to take a lot of political wrangling to get the K-League to link up with the K3 League. But overall, um, it's been good to see the, the growth in clubs. And you see some really nice stadiums now, like uh, Mokpo and Chanan. They have football-specific grounds that are nice and intimate. So I think that's really going to help with, for them in the future. No, nowhere could be better than the, the Kangbuk uh, Civil Stadium with the, the cherry blossoms in the background and an angry guy chasing Mark with a baseball bat in the, in the foreground. Um, it, it does sound, and um, I, I don't know, Mark, if you have any more questions, but my, my sort of final question is going to be, um, we just talked about the, the lower leagues. You, you've spent 17 years on, of your life on, on this book. Is the lower league the subject of the next book? Well, you never know. Uh, it, could be, it could be 17 years until I write a book about uh, Seoul United and their, their dire straits. Devon, thank you very much for, for, for joining us uh, tonight. We will, we will let you go. 
just uh, again to confirm your, your book, Who, Who Ate All the Squid? Football Adventures in South Korea is published by Pitch Publishing, I believe it is. That's right. Yep. In both paperback and ebook. And it is available on all of the usual platforms. Yeah. If you're in the UK, you can get free shipping from uh, bookshop.org, hive.co.uk, a great read or Amazon. Um, and if you're in South Korea, you can actually order it through the UK and get free international shipping through Wordery, Blackwells, or Book Depository. Or if you'd like to order it domestically uh, within South Korea, you can get it from uh, Kyobo, Yes24, and Aladdin. And I, I would say, I would say it is very well worth reading. Anyone who has any interest in the K-League should actually read this book. Um, it's a, uh, it's really a thing of though, though everything changes, everything stays the same because the arguments that were going on in 2003, they're still going on in, in, in 2020. There's nothing new under the sun. And it's uh, really, really good to have it all written down, an actual record of, of, of what has happened in the K-League. So thank you very much for, for actually finishing the book. Um, and thank you very much for joining us tonight. That's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Okay, that brings us to the end. Mark, when, when are we going to be back again? We never we don't do these very much anymore. Uh, I guess we'll be back. We'll probably do some kind of season 48 podcast review, maybe around New Year. Uh, and then, yeah, we'll be back, uh, hopefully back once fans are back in stadiums, we'll be able to kind of like have more things to talk about. 2021 will be a different year, hopefully. A different year indeed. Okay, so basically we will see you when we see you. We play.